Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Happy Mother's Day. I hear the, the youth pastor, almost former youth pastor at this place, uh, <laughs> said something about me that might not be true. That's not how that went. This morning when my kid woke up screaming at 5.30, hurled over and said, Happy Mother's Day. Go get your child. Um, <laughs> joking, joking. <laughs> not, not true at all. Happy Mother's Day to everybody out there. So this morning, if you're new to CBC, every time we come here and before you open the scriptures, we acknowledge a truth that the way that God created us oftentimes isn't mirrored in the world that we live in. And we live in an incredibly critical culture and a culture that puts me at the center. It says, I am the judge and jury of all things good and all things right. And what that leads us to, as we interact with people, as we interact with pastors, as we interact with anything we do, it leads us to this place where our first desire and drive is to be critical and, and, and not necessarily to find where God is speaking to us. There's a quote, We like here that we read before we do sermons, the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And what that means for us here is that as we gather this morning and we spend the next 35 minutes walking through some scriptures, we're going to start by asking the question, where is God speaking to me this morning? Because he is. How is the Holy Spirit showing me more of the beauty and goodness of God through the scriptures? Because he is. So we start this morning by recognizing the space is different than the space outside this place that God has called us to be a community that seeks him and and, and follows him and is molded by what he's doing and how he's speaking to us through his scripture, which he will. And so we're going to start just by praying. I'll pray. I'll ask that you take some time and and say a quick prayer that the spirit might speak to your spirit and I'll ask you pray for me uh, that, that I use what we've been taught today to show us more of the goodness of God. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here on Mother's Day. I'm thankful for the simple recognition that there's something bigger than ourselves, for the simple recognition that there's something that's more worthy of our worship than what we see outside of this place, that we need you. God, I pray as we open some scriptures today, you recenter our hearts around your goodness, around how you've made us, around our identity, not found in what we do or what we own, but, or what people think of us, but who you are. So Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. If you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds and ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit today. And as you pray for me, that God might use my preparation to uh, just show us more of how good he is to us whether I say the right words or the wrong words, that God overcomes and just shows us his beauty and his worth today because that's why we worship him. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. So we're in the middle of a series on identity, and it's kind of coming from this place that deep down we're recognizing and realizing that what defines us will ultimately drive us. 
right? What defines us will ultimately drive us. What we want to identify with shapes who we're becoming by how we act. I have two brothers. I have a little brother and a twin brother. My twin brother has always been much taller than me. He's about 6'3", blonde hair, blue eyes. And there's this moment, there's this moment in my life I remember. My little brother spent the summer in Iowa eating all the meat and all the potatoes. And, and he left and he was shorter than me. My dad was a short kid, he told me growing up. And then one summer, his freshman year, I think he said he grew like a foot in five months. He said he walked like a baby giraffe, but it was great because now he was tall. And I remember my little brother came back from Iowa And my dad always told me, you're going to be tall like me. You'll hit a growth spurt just like me. And my little brother came back, and I went from looking down to looking up at him. And my dad said, well, I guess it's not you. Somebody's got to have a runt of the litter, right? (laughs) Formed me. And then I started looking through pictures of myself, and people started calling out things I did in the last, oh, really, 10 years. So we have some pictures I want to show you from the last, give or take, 10 years of my life. This is about 10 years ago. It's my friends in Germany. See if you can pick up on a trend. You can go to the next one. There it is. Right there, I'm in the middle of that blonde bombshell next to me is my wife, everybody. I'm getting the points this morning, all right? You see a trend yet? What's the next one? Yeah, I'm on the right. So then somebody circled something and sent it to me this about a year ago, and the next one. Yeah. In all the pictures, I seem to be standing on my tippy toes. I kind of had no idea, and I do it all the time. Do you know why I do it all the time? Because today we talk about this simple truth that we oftentimes buy into the lie that we're defined by how other people see us. Let me tell you something. I don't want to be the shortest person in a picture. We, We live in a society. We live in a society that now more than ever, you have the ability to have a platform. You have the ability in real time to know what people think about you all the time, and that is daunting. We live in a society that also loves that ability. I can throw numbers and stats out at, at you all day long about a billion people a day post to Facebook and like 3.5 billion post to Twitter and 500 million post to TikTok. All I'm saying there is simply we like the idea that other people see us and respond to us. We crave the, the acceptance from others in our lives. It's not new. Roman philosopher Marx Aurelius said, we all love ourselves more than other people, but care more about their opinion than our own. I think now more than ever, we live in a world where it's easier and easier to be defined by what others think of us, and that is dangerous. But before we do that, I think we have to recognize that affirmation is a good thing. Healthy affirmation is good. And now we get to the point in the sermon where it's soccer story time, everybody, all right? If you're new to CBC, I decided to coach my kid's three-year-old soccer team eight weeks ago, and I use this forum as therapy for me, all right? Um, I share a story each week. Soccer season ended last week for us. You know my favorite moment? My favorite moment was, it was like three games ago, and my kid took the ball from another kid uh, and started sprinting down the field with the ball all by herself. And she kept going, it's a little breakaway for my daughter. And this is some combination of like Ronaldo and Messi. It meets my kid and I'm yelling, go, go, go. She made it all the way down the field and she didn't even stop once to be distracted by her grandparents or the flowers or the blue sky, which is a really big hurdle in three-year-old soccer. And and she shoots and she scored her very first goal. Guys, I'm not gonna lie to you. In that moment, I'm proud of my daughter, but sports proud is something totally different. And she turned, and she looked at me, and she said, Dad, I did it. My heart grew like three sizes that day, you know? It was beautiful and healthy and good. 
affirmation, good affirmation is a good thing. This is why we see stories in the scripture of, of Jesus being baptized. And what does God the Father say to Jesus the Son? He says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. This moment of beautiful, holy affirmation that's centered around the one who made us, who wants us to thrive, who wants us to find good for us. That kind of affirmation is a good thing. The problem we find in our culture today is not that we need affirmation, it's that we find it in the wrong places and we crave it consistently. That's when it becomes a problem. And so we live in this world where affirmation is always around the corner by the next person, by the next tweet, by the next post, by the next like. Like what one writer said, the greatest prison people can live in is the fear of what other people think. So really what we're dealing with today is not just being defined by what others think, but how we handle our insecurity about not feeling like others like us enough, you know? And that idea of insecurity and what people think of us go hand in hand because I think that idea of insecurity is something that grows in us and I don't think we have it initially. So the Arboretum yesterday and my daughter sang the entire way through. I did not say, well, she just yelled the entire way through, right? I think that we grow in our ability to understand that people see us and that causes us to question if they like us or if not. Most adolescent development studies will tell you middle school is awkward. Because in middle school is really the first time that kids can say, I not only know how I relate to you, but now this guy over here sees how I relate to you and he can judge me. So we all don't do anything because we're paralyzed by what other people think of us. And here's the problem is we live in a society that likes to flee our insecurity. And that's a good thing. We like to cover up our insecurities. We wear baseball caps if we're going balding. We wear extra large shirts if we've got a little, you know, like holiday gut going on. That's a good thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't flee from insecurity. If, if we did, then I'm not advocating for like the rise of men's schmedium shirts again, like the mid-2000s, you know? We don't need that mess. But we live in a society where we flee insecurity about what people think of us by posting more, by getting more likes, by having a better X, Y, and Z this time, by making the photo prettier, nicer, kinder, bigger, grander, all that stuff. And it perpetuates a cycle of unhealthiness. That the way to get out of being controlled by what people think is to post again and be controlled by what people think. And what we see in this moment, what insecurity does, it's an invitation to see who our God really is. Our insecurity reveals what we actually worship. Proverbs 29 says it's dangerous to make that thing that we worship man. It says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Again, I could give you study after study after study, but there is a clear connection in adolescence between the use of social media and depression. Facebook knew it, and they hid it for years. You saw that case. There's a rise in people's happiness, literally, and their use of online presence, posting about who they are and what they do all the time, and it's an inverse proportion. So, So the more that we post online, the more depressed we typically are as a people. And this is not to say... That, that online forums are bad. This is simply to say there's a cautionary tale to them as well. I, I like what uh, one Christian rapper says, if you live for people's acceptance, you'll die by their rejection. Proverbs 13 says, one person pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. You know that Dallas invented a phrase called the $30,000 millionaire? You know what that is? Have you heard that before? Oh, go to Uptown. Um, <laughs> 
So, so I'm not kidding. Like, like most of the country, it's, it's kind of widely used now, but Dallas is known to be the genesis of the $30,000 millionaire. These are people that make 30K a year. They have hourly wage jobs and they're doing good work, but they live like they're a hedge fund broker from New York City and buy all the Ubers and all the cocktails and live well outside their means. You know why? It's bad for them and their future, but you know what matters is how people see them. We live in a world that oftentimes will fight for the opinion of others over the good of ourselves. And so if we're going to talk about this definition of us by what others think of us, we have to separate two ideas, image from identity. They're very, very different. Image is different than our identity. So often we have made the two things the same. There's a documentary, I think HBO put it out, called Fake Famous. And they put up these ads all over LA and said, hey, do you want to be Instagram famous or some social media famous, and thousands of people applied. They picked five. And it's a story about how they went from no online presence to an Instagram influencer in the matter of months by taking pictures that were all lies. One of the things they did was they said, if you buy a, a toilet seat at Home Depot, it looks just like a private jet window if you put it up again. So they take these pictures. Yeah. They would take pictures of like their hair in a kiddie pool surrounded by roses in the backyard and be like, it's the Four Seasons. There's actually a place, I think it's in L.A., it's a private jet that never actually moves because you can rent it and take pictures there whenever you want. It's rented 24-7, you know? Because we have a problem with image that costs us oftentimes our identity. One is deeper than the other. A, a, a poll last year came out. They asked over 2,000 kids between the age of 11 and 14, and one-third of those kids said, you know what I want to be when I grow up? Pastors. <laughs> Kidding. One-third. It hurts when you laugh, too. One-third of... One-third of those kids said, I want to be an Instagram or a YouTube influencer. That means they want their job to be other people who like them. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's dangerous. <laughs> and so what we have to understand is the difference between image and identity. Identity is something given, fundamental to the way you see yourself. Image, on the other hand, is something that you create fundamentally about the way you want others to see you. The sin of our age is to live for image instead of from our identity. In steps Jesus. About time we got to Jesus, everybody, right? So here's what Jesus did. We're going to go to three examples. I'm going to keep them pretty short. There's so many more. But Jesus had this knack for seeing beyond somebody's image deep down into their identity. One of the first places we see this is Matthew 8. It's probably one of my favorites. So in Matthew 8, Jesus just gets done with this Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard of it. It's his longest sermon that he ever gives. It's half the length of one of mine. And he gives this beautiful sermon, and he says, this is what my kingdom's all about. He literally outlines, this is what the way of the Lord is. If you follow my influence, this is the world we're creating together. It's beautiful. This is the values of my family. And then right after he gets done with that, he gets down off the mountain, it says, and as he's walking down in Matthew 8, verse 2 and 3, it says, large crowds followed him. It says, a leper approached him and bowed before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. That moment is huge. He didn't just heal somebody here. He just talked about the ways of his world and the ways of his kingdom and the intrinsic value of people and how much God loves them and wants them to be and do good and great things. And then this leper comes up to him. And in the first century world, leprosy was a big unknown. And so they took a lot of precautions against lepers. If only we had some kind of disease that was really unknown that caused us to be irrational that we can relate it to. <laughs> Wait a sec. 
Who left their Amazon boxes on the porch for three days before they took them in? I'm just saying. So in the first century world, if you were a leper, you literally got kicked outside of camp because they didn't know how it spread. They just knew that it spread. Everywhere you went, you had to yell, a leper's coming through, and people would avoid you literally like the plague. You couldn't be with your family and friends. You were ostracized from your community, but it wasn't just your physical community. You were ostracized from your spiritual community. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't pray with people. You couldn't do anything with other peoples that, that weren't lepers. You were branded by this. Your new image was one that was uh, going to kill all those around you. Jesus comes this leper, and he says, hey, can you make me clean? And what Jesus didn't do is say, ooh, gross, get away. I can do it from over there. I'm God, you know? It says, and this is my favorite part. It says that how did he choose to heal? He touched him. Amazing moment when nobody would have saw that coming because Jesus knew the intrinsic value of people. He looked past this man's image into his identity as an image bearer of God himself. If you go to another story that I like, it's in um, Zacchaeus in... Luke 19, right? So if you know anything about Zacchaeus, he's the chief tax collector. And our text says he came to that place, he looked up, and Zacchaeus said to Jesus, um, as he was a a chief tax collector, um, he said that he wants to go and have dinner with him. He said, Zacchaeus, please come down. I must stay at your house tonight, verse 6. So he came down quickly and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And when the people saw it, they complained. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So a tax collector in the first century world Their image was not good. So the Jews were ruled by the Romans, and the Romans got rich off the Jews. And there's only one person in that whole system that benefited from Roman rule, and it was the tax collectors. They would sit at ports of entry, and they would take money from their own people on top of the taxes that they paid to Rome and keep it. They literally betrayed their tribe for wealth. Zacchaeus wants to be around Jesus. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst in the first century. He felt so far from God, he had to climb a tree and couldn't get near him because nobody liked him. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house and eat a meal. And in the first century world, that was very intimate. You only did that with friends and family. And people looked at Jesus and says, do you not know who this man is? And Jesus says, I do. But look past his image and see his identity. And then the third story that I'll use today is one in Mark chapter 8. There's a blind man. And it says in our text that they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and asked him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him outside of the village. He spit on his eyes and placed his hands on his eyes and asked, do you see anything? Now your natural reaction is, that's disgusting. And you're right. (laughs) But also, again, the first century, why Jesus spit on him here is, in the Old Testament, they talk about spitting and it's never something good, shocking. It's always something that's an insult to the person. If you were born with a disease like this, if you were born blind, there's an example in John 9, people didn't think, man, bad luck for you. They really thought that God didn't like you. If you were born with an infirmity, they thought this was God's judgment on you because you were not worthy of God. And so in the Old Testament and in the first century, what would happen is you'd see these blind and lame beggars and Jewish, pious Jewish people would walk by and spit on them because they thought God had done the same. And that's why they were in the first place infirmed. And so they were carrying on a tradition that God doesn't like you and neither do I because you did something to really, really upset him. That's why you are the way you are. Jesus takes this idea of spit and says, I'm going to use this thing that people have used to judge you because they see this image of you and I'm going to use it to heal you because I see who you really are. Jesus moves past past image into identity. It's a beautiful rhythm that Jesus got into all the time, and you can keep going with it. 
Whether it's the way he treated women in the first century or the way he called his disciples that everybody else rejected, Jesus had this ability to look past what people saw, how people thought of people, and said, no, I see you as something bigger, better, more. Jesus looked past image, and he focused on identity. And so if we're going to get out of the insecurity that image brings us, we have to do the same thing and move past the image that we put online or in person and ask the simple question, what is then our identity? And it goes back to who God is and how he made you. Because I think the cure for insecurity, especially when it comes to how people think of us, is to understand your identity in God. And and look, I know you've been in church for a long time probably, and you've heard the idea that we're made in the image of God. But so often it's the simple yet nuanced truths that we need to hear often over and over again because we stop believing them the quickest. So in Genesis 1, He's creating all these things, and he says in verse 26, I'm going to make you in humankind, in our image, after our likeness. And look, when it, when it says image there in the Hebrew, when it says image there, it doesn't just mean that you reflect God like you're looking in a mirror. In the world, in the ancient Near East, there were temples. You built temples to your God. And as you built temples to your God, you'd make this beautiful, ornate temple that reflected the majesty of whatever God you followed. And then in the middle of that temple, you would put this idol so that people would walk into this beautiful, ornate creation and they would see this idol that represented the God that they prayed to, that they sacrificed to, that they asked things for. So what God is doing is saying, hey, here is my temple, this beautiful world that I made, because he made in five days all the other things before, the land, the sea, the fish, the birds, the sun, the moon, the stars. I have made this temple that's beautiful, and where is my image in the middle of it? It is mankind. Go and be in my image. Theologian N.T. Wright says, it's not as much like a mirror you're looking back towards, but it's an angled mirror that shows you the creation so that when they see you, they see the God that created you in the first place. It's this beautiful picture that the image of God is not simply made so that you can feel good about yourself, even though, sure, it can be. It's deeper. It's made so that we might know our place in the world to curate and cultivate God's design flourishing for the world around us. It's bigger than just you are valued. It's our job then as image bearers is to show the value of God to a world that needs to see the goodness of God. It's an angled mirror. And so when we talk about identity in Jesus, when we talk about insecurity, we have to understand that so often we're hung up on image and not identity. And that changes everything. Because there's a difference between living for our identity and from our identity. What Jesus does when he calls people, when he heals people, when he, when he charges people to live, is he calls us to live from our identity, not for our identity. So he moves past image into identity, and then he says, you as image bearers have a job to do, to live from the intrinsic value given to you by God, not for it. It fights against the grain of a social media world that begs us for more likes and more shares and more retweets, that asks us to find validation in others' value of us online or in person. And so we see in this text, I think, if there is one thing in our world right now that I think would most profoundly shape our world, it's if people would stop seeing people as a problem but seeing them as image bearers of God. Right, wrong, or different. If that shaped how I treated others around me, that would shape our world in a place that's good, healthy, and whole. We have a problem because we don't do that. So in a world that says you are what others think of you, Jesus says 
Get to look past image, see identity, and then live from it, not for it. Because the problem with that is when we don't, there's a cost. There's a really great verse um, in, in Ephesians 2.10 that you probably know about. For we're God's masterpiece, he's created us anew in Christ Jesus. That's what we just talked about. But then it goes on, and it says, so we can do all the good things he planned for us long ago. So we need to talk about the difference between why identity matters, why we need to live from our identity, not for our identity. And that's the difference between the answer uh, to why we run from insecurity. There's a cultural answer to why we run from insecurity, and there's a biblical one. The cultural answer for why we run from insecurity is because it's an offense to individual worthiness, you know? You should never feel like you're not enough. You're enough just the way you are, Bruno Mars, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I, I don't know, as a Christ follower, if I hold that definition that I'm good enough just the way I am, the biblical narrative is I'm not God is. The biblical narrative is I've got some flaws. I don't want to keep my flaws. The biblical narrative is the world is broken because people are broken. You can keep going down this road if you want to. The problem with insecurity, if we define insecurity by not living into our intrinsic self-worth, we've missed the boat of Jesus' worth. God disproves our insecurity because it's an offense to his son's worthiness. There's a big difference there. So there's a story in Galatians 1 uh, and 2. Peter, who's a big deal in the first church, goes to this church in Galatia, which is full of a bunch of Jewish people. And then there's some Gentile people. And essentially what happens, you can read the story if you want to, is it's all about eating and the, and the ritual rite of cleanliness rules and laws. And, and Peter says, they say, do we need to do all this ritual washing anymore? And Peter says, yeah, you probably should, because he wanted them to like him. And Paul comes in and just blasts Peter in a really beautiful way. He says, what are you doing? You're, you're compromising the gospel because what you're asking them to do is, is have people see you and your acts of righteousness instead of seeing Jesus as enough. The cost of wanting people to love us for who we are is we don't see that people love Jesus for what he's done for us. We sacrifice the goodness of God if we want people to look at us all the time. So the cost that Peter and Paul had to pay there was that they didn't understand that, that every little bit of time that we have people look at us, we miss an opportunity for people to look at the God who's created us, formed us, given us identity, and said, now go and show that to the world around you. In Galatians 1, it's quoted by saying, am I trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So this place here, where we say, God asks us to move beyond image into identity. Our identity is formed and found in who God is and what, we call, what he's called us to be. So then you get this place, well, then we can say, well, cool. I just don't care at all about what people think of me. That's awesome. A couple years ago, for Christmas cards, I had this wonderful idea. I'm not a huge Christmas card fan because I feel like most of them are lies, you know? And look, if you send me one, I put it on my fridge. I love it. It's great. Please keep doing it. But it's like the best picture of your family throughout the year. And then sometimes people send a little note on the backside, like, our family's doing so fantastic. And I'm sure you are. This is my competition coming out, you know? And so I, I kick back. I'm like, you know, I don't care what people think of me. And so I said, hey, what if every day for the year, right when we wake up, first thing, we took a picture of ourselves, and that was a collage of our Christmas card. <laughs> my wife did not love that idea like I did. Why bring that up? It's because the Bible walks this fine line between not being driven by what others think of us but caring what they think of us because of the way they see us is how they see God. 
The Bible walks this fine line between saying it is okay not to put your identity in the image of what other people see. It is not okay not to care because they're looking at you and they're seeing the God that you say you follow. The Bible has this fine line between you don't, you're not defined by how people see you, but you should care how people see you. Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver or gold. The whole point of the Old Testament was that the Israelites were supposed to be this redeemed, shining, beautiful example of what life with God looks like. They were supposed to be a city on a hill that didn't cause people to to walk away from God, but to run towards God. And what we do in this series is we talk about these different ways culture has defined us is is we don't kick them to the curb, we redeem them. So in in the first week when we said, hey, we're not what we own, the answer is not to sell everything and not own anything. It's to use what we own for the glory of God. Last week when we talked about you are not what you do, the answer is to not do anything. It's to have a redeemed sense of doing because we know why we're doing things. When we talk about not being defined by what other people think, the answer is not to care about what other people think. It's to know that as they see us, hopefully they see a God who's good to them as well. We care what others think, but not for our good, but that they might see God's goodness. In a world that wants people to look at us, to like us, we fight that narrative. So we're already liked. Look at the God that already loves me. In 1 Peter, he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, they may observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. It's the idea that people around us might see us and see the beauty of God through us. It's a redeemed version of how we see others' view of us. But it starts with motivation. It starts with why we do what we do in the first place. It starts by not being beholden to the view of others, but finding our value in the God who gave us value in the first place. It's a hard thing to do. It causes us to ask some tough questions in it deep down in our souls. And so as we come to this place, we find ourselves with a couple questions we need to ask. One is pretty simply, who are we trying to please with what we do? You know, the top three days of church attendance, Easter, Christmas, Mother's Day, right? It is. You know one of the lowest days of church attendance? Father's Day. That's a whole other sermon. Um, <laughs> I find God on the golf course. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I feel like today I'm going to get on Instagram and see pictures flooded of beautiful, happy families that are. I, I feel like today is one of those days where we have to ask that question when we do and when we post and when we, when we do all these things, why are we doing it? And, and here's what's really difficult about these things is I can't look at what you do and know why you do it. You can. Your friends can. Your family can. They can ask that question. Today is one of those days where we have to sit down and ask the question, why do we do what we do? Is it so that others might think I'm great? Or is it because I know that Jesus already said I'm great and I want people to see him? And so we fall in two camps. We ask the question deep down, why do we do what we do? And then the follow-up question is, who do people see when they see me? And look, I've met a lot of Christian jerks in my life. I probably was one a couple times but I want people to see the beauty of a loving and graceful God when they agree and when they disagree with me. I want people to see a God that loves them really, really well. When they agree and when they disagree with me, I want people to see a God worth following. And that means <laughs> they have to care about what they think of me in a way that's holy and righteous and good. 
a friend of mine, his name's Carrie, and he, he is from North Dakota, but don't hold that against him. And he um, might live this out the best I've ever seen anyone live this out. I don't know if I've met a man that's more gracious and loving and compassionate. I think whether you're a Jesus follower or not, he would love you. I let, he let me live in his house for six months in Chicago and not pay a dang thing. This man embodies what I think it looks like to not be defined by others, people's view of you, but also care what you think of him because he reflects God. His kids, a couple don't really follow Jesus. One of them said, you know, we might not agree about God, but he's the best man I've ever met. And, and all you have to say there is, why do you think that is? Because God is good, you know? So as we talk about what defines us, we come back to the same place. <laughs> the God who created us, who died for us, who saved us. And what does it matter what people think of us? So that people see him. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that I'm not beholden to the opinions of others to find my value and my worth. That's hard. So Holy Spirit, help me with that. Help me to fight through those natural inclinations where I crave acceptance and approval all the time. Help me to find ways to tell myself the truth again and again and again that I am who you say I am. My identity rests in the goodness of God and nothing else but also give us a compassion that we might live in such a way where others see the goodness and beauty of God. That we might care what this world thinks about us because we care what this world thinks of you. So Holy Spirit, give us an empathy for those people who need to see the beauty of God. And help us to live in a way that they want to find you worthy of worship too. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.